0: How many of the beginners are uh, new to New York Insight? Welcome. Thank you for coming and I hope you got some benefit from that, those instructions tonight. <clears throat> we are uh, very happy to make the offerings of Dharma in New York City and particularly in the, uh, in the lineage that we're in. I've been practicing meditation now for probably more years than quite a few of you in this room are, 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 have been on this earth, which is kind of bizarre for me to say, because I always think of myself as a young sort of twenty-something, but I guess it's a little late for that now. Somehow the spirit always seems to stay young even while the body is betraying it But we've been we've been off making these offerings since uh, 1997 and uh, It's it's quite astounding to those of us who were here at the beginning that we're still here because when we decided to start New York Insight, um, we were kind of naive, <laughs> to say the least, about f- what it takes to um, maintain a center such as this, but also just, not just what it takes, but in terms of financial resources, but also energy and infrastructure and, um, We certainly weren't prepared for the explosive growth of uh, mindfulness in our culture. So when we started, we we didn't have a lot of resources. So we we had what we called a Buddha buggy, which was a a little rolling suitcase. And in it, we had a, a Buddha and an altar cloth and a candle, and a vase, so that we could set up an altar anywhere. And the way that we uh, held our events is mostly uh, because those of us who had started the center were, were teachers, but we were quite um, green. We relied on visiting teachers like Jack Cornfield and uh, Sylvia Borstein and Sharon Salzberg and names that were known because they'd written books to come and uh, give events and so we would roll the Buddha buggy to wherever we were having the events, sometimes at public schools, sometimes at the blood center in New York, sometimes at churches all over the city. And we uh, we came to this, we decided to just take the plunge and have faith and uh, get the space, rent the space about uh, 11 years ago, 10 or 11 years ago. And it's been quite astonishing to me that uh, at the time, actually, I think I was the only person on the board who wanted to do it. And uh, I don't know why they went along with me, but they did, and I'm glad. Because here we are, 10 or 11 years later. And what it, what it, the reason that we're still here is because of you. It's because people who have gotten benefit from this practice have been generous in supporting the center, generous in supporting us in our ability to. Uh, to be here, to teach, to have uh, to have the center open for uh, anyone to be able to come and meditate uh, starting in the afternoons and um, we have something happening, some event happening where we always sit and contemplate Dharma and it's all because the people who come uh, get some benefit from practicing meditation and from contemplating the wisdom teachings of the Buddha and attempting as best they can to live a life of integrity as 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 taught by the Buddha by embodying as as closely as we can. Uh, some virtue in our lives and extending loving kindness and compassion again as best we can to any being that we encounter and of course we're not perfect in that. Anybody got it yet? Perfect, yeah, no, nobody wants to own up. But to to really try to live that way and I think that it's um, It's becoming more and more urgent and important that there are beings in the world who are following a path such as this. This is not the only path that is available to live that kind of life. But it's certainly a potent one, this path that we have all chosen by being here. Chosen at least for tonight. have to be permanent and so from that I'm I'm truly grateful that there are beings in the world that are my companions in this practice and that choose to come here to hear the teachings and then to go away and see if they work in their lives. So that's a that's a really um, long way of saying that the center needs your support both by your presence your coming to to receive the teachings but also your financial support your energy um, and just your feeling of belonging because it is our hope that as you walk through the door that you feel a warm welcome that you feel that uh what we feel which is that anyone who walks in the door becomes a part of our community whoever you are wherever you've come from whatever your journey that you are deeply welcome and and we're delighted to see you so we've gone through many iterations of the ways in which we ask for support and the way in which we um, offer our, our teachings. We've done it purely on Dana, and that, uh, that was, we're certainly still here, so it wasn't a disaster. But it was difficult. And so we've modified that because we recognize that the, uh, and Dana, for those of you who are new to the practice, is a Pali word that means uh, giving. And we try our very best to um, to to train in generosity because we recognize that as a quality that is uh, helpful to us as well as um, the recognition of of our interdependence and our uh, the way in which we all depend on each other these days uh some events we ask for a registration fee but we never turn anyone away and uh, in the sittings we uh, we, the center gets supported by your loving and hopefully grateful uh, donations that support both the center and the teachers because as teachers when we come most of the time we come based completely on faith and love Uh, we are the we because we love the Dharma and we love everyone that, we, that comes through the door. Um, we offer our teachings, we offer our own practice um, and what we get in return is, is your generous your generosity and your offerings. So we have a box in the back, and um, if you're so moved and you wish to support us, um, you're invited to make a donation. And of course we're very grateful for whatever you offer. So on these evenings uh, that I come once a month uh, here, we, instead of a Dharma talk that I offer, I invite you to um, Inquire at whatever what questions that you might have about practice or about the application of these teachings to your life uh, With the hope that we can inquire together to come to some understanding of what is What is happening? I? Certainly, don't have all the answers. I have a few but not many and I'm I'm willing to share whatever I have but Mostly I like to just inquire with you because I think most of the time whatever questions you have you do have your own answers and they're better than anything I could tell you. So we try somehow to, uh, to come to that, to that answer that may be deeply uh, hidden inside of you or maybe just at your, um, the edge of your consciousness and just begging to be aired or made conscious. So please, if you have questions, I'm really happy to entertain them.
1: Um, You've mentioned this, I think, and I've read it. I would like to um, know more or more practice about the idea of friendliness toward the feelings that come up in meditation or just life, um, receiving them with friendliness. I don't remember how you put it, but thank you.
0: Mm. So why do you ask that particular question?
1: I don't always feel friendly toward the feelings.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And why not?
1: Um, Because I'm frightened. Or, uh, or, the, or it hurts or mainly I'm frightened or feel I shouldn't be having them or
0: mm.
1: um, don't want them.
0: So what's the proportion of fear?
1: Uh, um, fear of... Thinking you shouldn't have them. Uh, fear, did I say fear? You did, um, <laughs> you said you're frightened <laughs> of them. Um, well, it underlies a lot of my feelings, but um, uh, anger or a sense of danger... Um, In in encounters uh, where there isn't actually physical danger, but just Mm -hmm. feeling unprepared, Mm
0: -hmm. Um. Mm. and so that precludes friendliness towards it.
1: Well, sometimes because because what you're saying, what you're saying
0: is, so the feelings that are coming up are fear and anger, and. negative emotions, uh, and you're having a hard time being friendly towards them.
1: Right. And judgment and all, all of these. And sometimes I am, but I, I feel, I don't have a sort of practice to turn to.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So do you do meta practice? I don't know. You don't know what meta is. Ah, okay.
1: So oh, meta, d- I'm sorry, yes. <laughs> I was thinking meta like metaphysical. Oh, yeah, well, yes. yeah, there's that um, too. Yes, and that, that helps, that Yeah. helps, but um, yeah. So
0: how do you do meta, so for those of you who don't know, because we, we use poly words sometimes and forget that half of the room doesn't know what on earth we're talking about. So meta, uh, M-E-T-T-A, uh, not M-E-T-A, which is a different meaning, Uh, is a is a Pali word that means uh, well it's these days in our culture it's translated as loving kindness I like to uh, translate it more as love but to distinguish what it means what what kind of love it is and you know since we're at Martin Luther King's birthday today actually um, uh, the word agape that he used to signify a kind of uh, universal love is what is meant in the the Buddhist teachings about uh, metta. And it's a a quality of heart that the Buddha encouraged us to to develop, to actually cultivate and and develop towards all beings. What's interesting is that uh, about uh, 500 years later there was a, a treatise called The Path of Purification the Vasudhimagga by a monk called Buddha Gosa, who then uh, set out a set, made, did a set of, of teachings, a, a set of instructions on how we could practice that, that feeling of universal love towards all beings and of course, and, and in his instructions, he directs us to uh, direct that first to ourselves. And it's an interesting thing that he said that because in our culture, so many times we talk about self-hatred or low self-esteem or self-judgment and all kinds of ways that are exactly the opposite of metta towards ourselves. But what's, what's interesting is in the Asian culture, the reason that Buddhaghosa instructed that we directed first to ourselves is that it was deemed to be the easiest person ourselves were deemed to be the easiest person that we could begin to get that feeling of loving friendliness or kindness or or this kind of universal love and so in the West we've had to kind of adjust our instructions so that sometimes we ask people if they're having trouble directing loving kindness towards themselves to direct it first to the second category of people which is what, what's called a benefactor, someone who has been really good to you in your life, maybe, dare we say, somebody who's unconditionally loved you. So, it, so it's an interesting um, dilemma that if we're to cultivate loving kindness, that we find it difficult to direct it first to ourselves and, and as you're saying, Alexandra, to the feelings that we're having. And it it would be an interesting inquiry to discover why we uh, uh, single out particular feelings to decide that those particular feelings don't deserve kindness. Because the feelings that you are identifying are probably the ones that most strongly need kindness or an attitude of kindness when they arise, so if there is fear, and one of the um, i I know I just had to put two sentences together, so strike the if there is fear so one of the things one of the things that the Buddha says in the in the sutra in the discourse that he talks about loving kindness is even as a mother protects with her chi- her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart, should one cherish all loving be all, all living beings and of course, that includes us so this feeling of and and that's how he so des- one of the ways in which he describes loving kindness or this metta. so Aren't those feelings in that moment the things that deserve most? Deserve more than anything else. That feeling of the protection of a child. So, if we are in fear, what is the thing that would most uh, counter that feeling of fear? And and. And I'll give you a hint, right? In the, in, the, in the suttas where the Buddha teaches his monks loving kindness for the first time, with this practice of metta, it was an instance in which they were, uh, he had sent them into the forest to meditate. And uh, they, they went into the forest and there were wild animals, as there were in those days. This was 2,500. Um, this was 500 BC, 2,500 years ago. There were lots of uh, wild animals and spirits in the forest. That you know, and, and it said that the spirits said, told the monk, you know, scared the monks because they wanted them out of the forest. And they ran back to the Buddha and said, "We can't possibly meditate in that forest. It's too scary." And he gave them this practice of loving-kindness as the direct antidote to fear. So if, if fear is arising in our atmosphere, in our mental, spiritual, emotional, physical atmosphere, what could be better than to meet it with metta, than to meet it with loving-kindness? because certainly there is nothing else that's going to counter it if we if we meet that fear with hatred or with disgust or with judgment as you said what will happen to it what do you think The negative feelings just multiply absolutely so so like all of these practices what we're asked to do is to develop and cultivate them when we aren't in those kinds of extreme uh, states so that when you are uh, feeling somewhat neutral or there isn't fear in your atmosphere or there isn't uh, something that's shaking your, your, your atmospherics or your vibration, then it's possible to develop it. It's like even our mindfulness meditation that, we're, that we all practice. We don't want to try to develop our muscle for it when things are really shaky, right? Anybody try to meditate when they're in you know, extreme angst or extreme fear or anger or any of those extreme emotions. Anybody done that? How'd you do? (laughs) Not very well, right? So, so our our task is to begin to work with the small things, right? So if you're sitting and some uh, state of mind arises that's, you know, mildly annoying, or you have a memory of somebody who said something that upset you, or uh, you know disrespected you, or whatever. In that moment when you're practicing, it's possible to direct, to to willfully direct loving-kindness towards it. And what you'll notice is the same thing you notice with mindfulness practice which is when you start to practice it, what happens? Anybody? What happens when you start to practice in the beginning? Does your mind stay perfectly still on the breath and you follow 15 breaths and 35 breaths and 50 breaths and 100? And What happens? How many? <laughs> so, you know, so thoughts come, right? And and in but in that moment things are pretty neutral, so it's possible to actually be a, a, a aware of the thought rather than caught by it, right? And that can be just for a split moment, a split second, and then the mind just comes right back in. You know, the you a moment of awareness and then something else happens, you know, a sound happens, and it triggers something else, and, the, you know, and then this happens, and then a memory happens, and then a story happens, and before you know it, you're five minutes into the story, and what happened? I thought I was following my breath. Oh, my God, where's my breath? Oh, I can't even catch my breath. Oh, <laughs> sound familiar, right? <laughs> yeah, and in that moment, it's actually possible to just stop and address love to yourself. Oh, look at this. Because what's happening in that very moment is you're recognizing your humanity. And you gotta love us. I mean, we're a mess, <laughs> right? You gotta love us, right? So, so if you start to practice with loving-kindness, with the very small things, very small things, just even noticing the mind wandering. And like, oh, darling. So that instead of saying, oh, Alexandra, there you go again, your mind is just off the blah, 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 blah. It's like, oh, dearest, come back, come back. Darling, come back. And a, and a kind of feeling of soothing rather than a feeling of annoyance and it may take training because our habit is to denigrate ourselves to punish ourselves to judge ourselves to criticize ourselves you know the self-critic comes up all the time in the voice of your mother or your father or your teachers or your you know your siblings and so to counter it is, um, is, has to be a practice it's not something that you just decide today well that's how I'm going to be now from now on and think that the force of the karmic force of, of your habits or, or the momentum is going to slow down right away so it takes in the beginning it's kind of ironic because it takes a little bit of faith right? that yes this practice will work but, in some ways, you're asked to have faith before the practice even starts to work because all it looks like in the beginning is like, this is never going to happen. I mean, I can't tell you how many students tell me that they have the busiest minds in the world, right? Everybody tells me that in the beginning. I can't practice. I can't meditate. I'm too... My mind is too busy. I've got too much on my mind, ah, blah, 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 blah. Right? But slowly and incrementally, with patience, we see the mind start to settle. And maybe in the beginning it settles for two minutes or, you no, know, half a minute. No, a quarter of a minute, ten seconds. And you glimpse it. You glimpse the peace that's there. And you allow that glimpse to be your spur. Ah, that can happen. And the next time, it may happen for 20 seconds. And the next time it may happen for 3 seconds. And the next time it happens for 7 seconds. It, it, there's, it's not a straight line. It's an arc. And all of these practices invite you to understand the human heart that has fear, it has hatred, it has anger, it has love, it has beauty, it has mystery, it has all of those qualities and the invitation of the practice is to enter into that fully with loving awareness. And that's a beautiful thing But all of these beautiful things are hard-won. You're not going to sit down and have it just happen like that. It's over a a whole lifetime. This is a lifetime's practice. And if anybody tells you this is an easy practice, run for your life. It is not true. I've encountered very few students who start with me, and within three weeks, they're like, got it, no problem, I'm out of here, <laughs> right? I've, I'm good, you don't have to, it, it doesn't happen. I've, I've not witnessed it. For myself, it's been years. And I still go on retreats in the first three days. I'm like, what on earth did I think I was doing? What brought me here? Why am I doing this? It's difficult. But the rewards of it are invaluable you cannot value it. Because it's a transformative practice that happens over a long period of time. And what happened, what's happened in my practice and the practice of people who I work with is I see over time just this incredible beauty that emerges surprisingly, for most of us. And so, these negative states of mind are the exact material that you need. Thank, when they come, give a real anjali of, thank you for showing me. They're not to be dismissed, or gotten over or, you know, or thinking that at some point you're never gonna have fear, you're never gonna have anger, you're never gonna have hatred. It's not that these states don't come, it's how we relate to them. I'm gonna say that again. It's not that these states don't come, it's how we relate to them. And sometimes we get caught by them. And then we say or do something really stupid that we wish we hadn't said or done. And sometimes, with our practice, we see them and we say what the Buddha said to Mara on the night of his enlightenment. I see you, Mara. Mara is the, um, the iconic personage in the, the night of the Buddha's awakening who comes to him and tries to get him off of his seat, right? And that's an, inner, that's an inner being for all of us, right? The self-doubt or self-hatred. So to be able to, with patience and determination, stick with your practice. And in the beginning, you have to have a tiny bit of faith to say, okay, I'm going to check it out. You know, I don't know, it doesn't look, I don't know, it doesn't make sense, but I'm going to check it out and see what happens, and then give it time to grow. So the metta practice is a practice that you can do if you really feel there's this self-hatred or hatred of the states that come, because they're, they're in all hearts. Anger and hatred and fear and jealousy and envy and stinginess and all of those qualities. They're all, they're in every heart. So do we hate ourselves for being human? Or do we appreciate our ability to transform those states? Use them, the very poison of those states can be used as the medicine that heals them. If we meet them with awareness and with kindness. Does that help you? Thank you.
2: Uh, I actually wanted to follow up on Alexandra's question. Uh, She was asking about uh, fear, and uh, you were talking about using meta practice to deal with it. And my question is, what about You know, what is the teach? Is there teaching on using not loving kindness when fear comes up, but kind of um, just a sense of extreme confidence, like raising your confidence and just saying, "No," kind of like, "I have this." (laughs) You know, this (laughs) this fear. Because a lot of the time we're afraid of like, I won't be able to do something, Mm -hmm. right? I won't be able to handle Mm -hmm. some situation. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just saying like, false, you know, I Mm -hmm. I will be able to handle this. Mm -hmm. And kind of more connecting instead of with your sense of compassion for yourself, um, more like with your sense of power, Mm. just like... Mm -hmm. Is there, did the Buddha speak about
0: that? So this Bodhisattva, Martin Luther King, right? Right, right. He says, power is the ability to achieve, uh, to achieve purpose. It is the strength required to bring about social, political, or economic changes. I suppose we could say spiritual changes, too. In this sense, power is not only desirable, but necessary in order to implement the demands of love and justice. One of the greatest problems of history is that the concepts of love and power are usually contrasted as polar opposites. And I didn't plant him, so I <laughs> Love is identified with a resignation of power and power with a denial of love. What is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive. And that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best, this is the good part, power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. Justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands against So what you're what you're bringing up is this uh, question of and and I I love it I love that the woman asked about Menta and the man asked about (laughs) power it's so perfect right I mean this is like perfect you know and I wish I could have staged this I had the, anyway um You know, so how have you done with that as a practice? Like, just like... Have I done that? Yeah, how have you done? Uh, How have you done when you've tried that power rather than love?
2: Yeah, I think it works very well. Yeah, okay. Because, and I was also actually reading uh, Martin Luther King before about that, on, on that topic, because I figured, right, I mean, if anyone... Combined love and power very yeah. effectively it's yeah Tim, and I feel like sometimes when I try to connect with a sense of compassion mm-hmm. for myself it's uh sometimes it's just the ticket right sometimes it's, really it's just what just the ticket sometimes mm-hmm. it's really nice, yeah. and effective mm-hmm. but sometimes it, it it does feel like. Okay, but I'm still kind of afraid.
0: Whereas oh, so you just want to like override it?
2: Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I just want to be like
0: enough. And you
2: know, you, you know, just like let's do this kind of thing. Let's yeah. March. You know? Yeah.
0: So you're talking about a fierce practice. Yeah. And that, but there's nothing. Just as Martin Luther King is saying, it, there's there's nothing that uh, makes them polar opposites, right? That you know. Either you're doing it this way or you're doing it that way. But that there is, what he's, his point is, that there is, a, there is a way in which fierceness can be combined with compassion, right? And that actually, they need each other. So that if we, if we try to, to power our way into a, into a situation, especially if other people are involved, good luck with that. Right, in terms of what what our what our uh, result is going to be, and we've all tried it. Right, anybody not try it, right? And we know what the we know what the results are. So, how ha, the the question for <coughs> as, for us as Dharma students is how do we put these these beautiful teachings into practice, right? And, and so usually for me, what I've noticed is the answer to that is never at any extreme. It's always somewhere in the middle where I can find some balance between uh, you know, what I consider to be polarities or dualities. So that, so that one's life becomes less of trying to figure out which, which pole I want to sit on and and more uh, a kind of um, quest for the middle a quest for combining these Practices so that yes, sometimes we have to say to ourselves enough You've done you've done that over and over and over and over and over again, and it doesn't work right so that but if you're trying to overcome fear (laughs) by powering into it I suspect that it will just hide for a while, even if you think you're being successful, and come back with even more force.
2: I, th- I think I'm talking about also kind of like power is one way to talk about it, or um, just a sense of self encouragement and confidence.
0: Yeah. Well, that's r- nothing r- wrong r- with that.
2: Kind of like.
0: If it works for you.
2: I think, you know, like the Buddha, right? Like, I see you, Mara, Mm I'm just gonna sit here. I can can do this. I'm not gonna get up from the seat until I'm enlightened. Mm -hmm. I do not care. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautiful. Good luck. There was somebody back there.
3: I have a a question that maybe can best be uh, put to you by the reference to Mara before. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we have thoughts that uh, act as distractions to our ability to calm and settle the mind, the thoughts that we have as distractions uh, seem to have a greater power by the fact that we identify with the thoughts that we it's a thought that when, you have a th- when one has the thought, the thought is such that you think, I am thinking this particular thought, which somehow affirms the thought as true or uh, something to be attended to. But it gets that power of, of, of something that needs to be attended to by the fact that we identify with it as I am having that particular thought. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, so the question is: does, How does Mara relate to that concept, and and how do we disidentify with the sense of of owning the thought, so that we can learn to uh, still the mind?
0: So Mara is the you know just to just to give you a little bit of that Mara Mara is the uh, is the symbol of all of the doubt and the um, the, the self-criticism in our own minds, right? So it's, Mara is not quite that, and I suppose we could say that uh, personifying a thought and thinking that it's my thought is, is part of Mara's um, function, right? To trick us into believing that there is this this uh, entity that is producing anything so if you listen to your th- if you if you pay attention to your thoughts what do you notice about them
3: they occur spontaneously without my having to think about having to think them
0: mm-hmm. like they come so what so what so what do you think makes you think that uh, it's i am having this thought uh
3: it just seems like there's, you know, that there's an identification with thought as something that is being created within the mind, so because it's, it's mm-hmm. felt to come from one's own mind.
0: So I've got a really great um, cure for that. So when you're having a thought, right, and it's like one of those pernicious thoughts that keeps repeating itself over and over. Anybody else uh, have that experience? They say that we have, um, I think it's something like 100,000 thoughts a day and ninety-eight percent of them we've had before. Right? So it's nothing new. That's just a PS. But so when you're having when you're having a thought and you're thinking that it's that it's your thought and it's becoming so you're becoming so wrapped up in that identity, not a problem. Just figure it's your neighbor having the thought. And look at it. Like what would you th- what what, do you, what would you think if you know Dorothy was having the thought instead of you you know that same thought that will that's Dorothy right in front of you <laughs> not the not the one from Oz and I'm sorry that was bad um, <laughs> and uh, so you know it's uh, being able to disidentify with the thought is not necessarily, not necessarily the only way of working with thoughts. One can actually notice the thought and notice that the thought is happening and pay attention to the process of the thought. Now, you need a little bit of stillness. You need to have been sitting for a little while to be able to really pay attention in that way, but it's really possible. It's not, it's not like some, you know, advanced practice that you have to be meditating for a hundred years before you can do it. You can actually, instead of being caught by the thought, you can actually pay attention to it in such a way that you're watching it arise, stay for a little while, abide, I call it, and then fall off the cliff. It just kind of disappears and it happens quite easily and quite automatically when you do that. So if you're caught by the content of the thought, it's impossible. Because you're so, you're so wrapped up in it and, it, and as you described it, it feels really true, and it feels like, yep, that's, that's right. I was right, he was wrong, he should have never spoken to me that way, he disrespected me, I should never speak to him again, and I'm going to get my revenge. right? we can be caught in the in the content of it and really just sit there, even though the person is not anywhere, you know, uh, within a hundred miles of you, get completely angry and pissed off and really, you know, plot your revenge. Right? Or the same thought can arise about what somebody said to you or how they said it or what how they treated you. And instead of going there with that content, notice, oh, a thought has arisen. And immediately, the spell of the content of the thought is broken when there is an an appreciation for what the process is to really be able to be aware of the arising of the thought, the abiding of the thought, and the falling away or the dissolving or the disappearance of the thought. So let's all do that right now. (laughs) So <laughs> see if you can do that. So I'm going to just ring the bell to give you a, something to listen to. Anybody able to do it? It's okay. So many. So many. Yeah, and? You know, uh, I feel
3: like I'm accomplishing something when I, when I remember that I'm thinking, but too often. I, 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 I will forget that I'm even thinking, and then I have to remind myself that I'm thinking, and then I see myself
0: thinking. So you're thinking too much about thinking.
3: Yeah. There's just thinking going on, then, then one forgets then awareness is lost.
0: So but were you able to do it now? Uh, At any time. Oh yeah. And what happened? And, you know, so describe to me process. describe to me the process of a thought. The
3: thought might not even have been a clearly formed thought about mm. anything I want was thinking or wanted to do. Mm-hmm. It was just a sense of thinking that i had the quality of thought even if it was not a particular content to mm-hmm. it and that that sense of thinking is a kind of uh shutting down of awareness uh
0: that okay that so, okay so anyone else some courageous person who doesn't okay thank you uh, i Uh, of itching and then um, went Mm -hmm. back to Maybe a a brief thought that came up and then okay. So when that brief thought came up, what happened? Um, It was there and then it wasn't Why was it there and not, Uh, not? because I Knew I was aware of it. So as soon as you were aware of it, what happened? It was there and there and there and then not there Disappeared.
3: Yeah. Then the next thing. So somebody
0: else is nodding. Is that what your experience was? Anybody else have that similar experience? Brian, how was your experience?
2: (laughs) Um, I didn't. I had one or two thoughts, not many. and
3: And
0: what happened to them?
2: I saw it about to
3: come up, and then as I looked at it, it vanished.
0: Thank you. The, the conversation, remi- I'm Shari, um, reminded me of, a few weeks ago Sharon Salzberg was here and she was talking about how she was explaining meditation to, I think it was a niece or, or someone young. And she said, um, the thought comes and it's like a butterfly and then it flies away. Yeah. And so, as you were describing that, that was the thought that came yeah. to me. Of yeah. the idea. But of did you experience that? I, yes. I don't want to talk about the idea of it. I want to really talk about the experience of it because what we tend to do is to think about thinking and conceptualize about thinking. So when Brian said, I had a thought and the moment I turned to it, it disappeared. That's the same the same uh, principle as, as the butterfly, is that what we begin to understand is thoughts are ephemeral. They're made of ephemeral substance if they even have any, su- they have no substance. They are completely ephemeral. And so when Brian said, it, it, the thought arises, I notice it, or it is noticed actually, nobody notices it, it just oh the mind addresses itself and the thought it, it doesn't even become formed right it just kind of says oh okay i see this space that i can't take up now and i'm gone and then the next one comes and we and we pay attention to it as i think you were you were saying and i think as you were nodding so there there are, and and what i want you to notice is Probably those people who are saying that have been practicing for a while and I asked Brian because he, now he's a plant because I knew that he would have that I wanted him to t- to tell me that and he was good. He said it exactly what I wanted him to say but uh, he's been practicing for a while and he practices diligently and, and substantially So th- so it's possible and I you know so you're not gonna believe me, but you believe him right because he's sitting down there And I'm sitting up here so It's possible, like him, that you train the mind in such a way that you stop thinking about thinking, but you actually pay attention to thinking, so that when a thought arises, it's known. The thought arises, it's known, it has its own journey. We don't have to get caught by it. We don't have to prolong it. We don't have to try to get rid of it. It's just what it is. And that's the beauty of meditation, is we don't have to do anything. We don't have to stop thinking, identifying with it. We don't have to stop thinking about thinking. We simply have to be present for its arising, its abiding, and its passing away. And trust me, what happens is people think, Oh my God, so I'm going to become like this piece of protoplasm that just sits there with (laughs) thoughts like... (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Right? No, that's not what happens. What happens is we become really intuitively intelligent about our process. But we're so used to being thinkers... And so reliant on the fact that we have this mind that can produce a subject, a verb, and an object, right? And we think that that's the the nature of life. And it misleads us completely when we think that somehow putting a subject, and a, a verb, and an object means something that it actually means what we think that subject, verb, and object mean, but it's just blah, 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 blah. It really has no substance. But you can't know that by thinking. You can only know that by presence. And that's, you know, in e- that's really the essence of this meditation teaching. Now, we're not talking about wisdom and we're not talking about integrity, which are the other two limbs of the path, along with meditation. But if we're talking strictly about meditation, that's what it brings us. It brings us this incredible body-based intelligence about who we are, which is so much more reliable than all of the ways in which we drag along conditioning into our thoughts our thought is completely conditioned. And we think that that's what's real, it's kind of what Harry was pointing to. We think that all of that is true because the mind is producing it. But there is a whole other piece to our existence, and that's our hearts and our bodies. And they tell the truth. The mind, eh, you know, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, you know, and sometimes we can't even tell the difference, right? So, so the practice of meditation, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. Because it brings you into the body and the heart. And that you can rely on. And so we're shifting, we're shifting, we're shifting our habit of relying on this to tell us what's true. And coming into this full embodied being that knows what it feels, and knows what its bodily, uh, uh, what 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 it the body how the body uh, responds to its environment. If we really can pay attention, our intelligence, our IQ goes up. You know, it doubles, it really does, it doubles. And it's not because we've learned more physics or we've learned more nuclear this or, you know, Latin or, you know, 10 languages. Those are all great, but it doesn't contribute to our intelligence. This is what, this is what gives us intelligence. And it's scary because that's not what we've been taught. We've been taught that, you know, if you can use this thing, you're good, right? You make a lot of money, everybody will love you, everybody will respect you, and then it turns out to be not so true. And we know that because the body tells us, oh, yeah, I'm still afraid, I'm still angry, I'm still fill in the blank. So we're not trying to stop identification or, you know, have, we've heard this teaching on no self so, you know, we want to have no self. Good luck with that, right? <laughs> that oxymoronic idea that we're going to have no self, right? Some self is going to have no self. S- but, we're, but we're actually working on getting the intelligence here. And we don't have to worry about whether we'll lose language or we'll lose whatever learning we've had. Learning is wonderful in many ways, but it's not all of life. And it it doesn't deepen our understanding of life. This deepens it. I've taken up too much of your time. And I know that there are a couple of hands here. If you have something that you really want to talk about, you can come up afterwards. Okay.
1: Hmm.
0: So our customary way of closing is to acknowledge that we've all sat here together, that we've created a community and now we're breaking it up. But something has happened in the meantime. Something beautiful has brought us together. And something beautiful has happened while we've been together. And that is we've given ourselves an opportunity to establish this presence. To train the body and the mind and the heart in this way of being and this way of knowing. And that creates A field of merit, a field of goodness, because our interest is not in overpowering anyone or getting something that somebody else has, but really in developing our own beauty, recognizing it. Whoever we are, however we are, however we've come in the door, we've come in with our own beauty. And our practice is designed, was designed by the Buddha to discover that, to uncover it. Every time we sit and pay attention, we are uncovering that beauty that we are. So we acknowledge that that's what we've done together. And each of us has had our own degree of discovery, our own degree of uncovering, and maybe all we did was sit and think for 45 minutes. And that's okay, too, because there's always another opportunity to practice. And even that teaches us something, because we've been present for it. So this merit and this goodness that we've created together, instead of holding it for ourselves, we dedicate it to the whole world. We acknowledge our interdependence, this interdependence that is unbreakable between us and all of humanity and we train the mind and the heart to wish deeply as part of our metapractice for the well-being and the safety and the health and the peace and joy of all beings everywhere without exception And we dedicate the merits and the goodness of this practice to that well-being, wishing that all beings be free from suffering and be completely free. That is our deepest heart's wish. Thank you so much for coming. Get home safely, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.